chapters this morning, verses 17 and 18. And there's a sermon uh, handout in your bulletin as well, if you'd like to follow along on that. We're looking at the corruption of worship here. Jack Arnold writes, There can be no appreciation for the Reformation until one sees the great spiritual need of the Western world in the 16th century. No Christian, Roman Catholic, Protestant, or Independent can gloss over the period of history from 590 to 1517. This period is a black spot to all who name the name of Christ, but it is Christian history. The medieval church had repeated the failure of Israel during the time of the judges. Their worship had grown increasingly corrupt to the point, if it weren't for the book of Ruth, as we read, happened during the time of Judges, if it weren't for that book, we might think that the entire nation of Israel had lost its way during this season. And if it weren't for the Protestant Reformation, we might think that true Christianity was unrecoverable during the medieval ages. Despite the multitude of examples of corrupt worship throughout history, we continue to see innovations in worship today. New inventions, new creations of ways to worship God. Methods that ultimately make a mockery of biblical worship. So the church used to offer grace to the highest bidder. And people clamored, really, to purchase it. Today's church promises to entertain whoever shows up, and the interest is in steady decline. Whereas the Pope was infallible, today's pastor is unaccountable. The Roman Catholic Church manufactured reverence through sacerdotalism or the idea that, you, that the priesthood was assigned with some supernatural spiritual gifts that were a requirement for the mediation between man and God. Right, so there was a, a holiness that they possessed, that the clergy possessed. In fact, there was the doctrine of sinless perfectionism that assigned clergy this superior holiness that man was, was dependent upon in order to get close to God. So you had this corruption there of, of oftentimes lack reverence altogether. There's not even a desire to show reverence for God. Right? Who needs to manufacture reverence when no one is looking for it? The corruption of worship is an ongoing problem, and it's illustrated in this passage as a sort of tragicomedy, right, that not even Shakespeare could have made up. And the conclusion, which begins here in chapter 17, the conclusion to the book of Judges will, will carry from 17 through the end, chapter 21. Um, and it's like the introduction, which was a lengthy introduction, where there were episodes of, that described both the political and the religious decline of Israel. But they come in reverse order. 
So whereas in the beginning it was the political, in the introduction you had the political decline followed by the religious decline. Here you have the religious decline followed by the political decline, which we'll spend the following two weeks on. So chapters 17 through 18 detail Israel's religious decline. Chapters 19 through 21 detail Israel's political decline, which ultimately the political decline is a result of their religious failures. God's absence near the end of Samson's life which we closed out last week, was fairly short. It was a, a, a very temporary period in his life where God departed from him. The Spirit left him. His strength left him. But then he was restored at the end. In these chapters, there's not a single reference to divine activity. All right, we only have imposters speaking about or for God. Nothing here described by the narrator as God acting. That doesn't mean God is ignoring the idolatry that's taking place. In fact, what we find is that he's using the idolatry and pitting it against idolatry so that it attacks itself. It folds in upon itself and is destroyed. What I want us to consider here from which this is an illustration of, and it's the the theme of this text is to, that left to our own imaginations and devices. We, left to our own imaginations and devices, we make a mockery of biblical worship and a shipwreck of our faith. So before we read chapters 17 and 18 of Judges, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text. This conclusion to the book of Judges is depressing. It's sobering, it's difficult uh, not only to understand, but to, to read and then to apply to our lives in one sense. It's hard to see how it applies. And then yet, on, on the other hand, we, we see ourselves here. We recognize our own tendencies, our own proneness to wander. And that apart from your spirit and apart from your mercy and grace, we would do the same thing. And we do. The church, in a broader sense, does the exact same thing that we'll see Israel doing here, of inventing our own ways of coming before you and worshiping you, and ultimately results in in your discipline. So Lord, help us to see this truth. Help us to have eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to believe. For your glory, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, read with me, beginning in Judges 17, verse 1. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, the, the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse, and also spoke it in my ears, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when, the restored money, or when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. 
And it was in the house of Micah, and the man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and household gods, and ordained one of his sons, who became his priest. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I am a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah, and I am going to sojourn where I may find a place. And Micah said to him, stay with me and be to me a father and a priest, and I will give you 10 pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothes and your living. And the Levite went in, and the Levite was content to dwell with the man. And the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest and was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And in those days, the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. For until then, no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. So the people of Dan sent five able men from the whole number of their tribe from Zorah and from Eshdale, to spy out the land and to explore it. And they said to them, go and explore the land. And they came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and lodged there. When they were by the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levite, and they turned aside and said to him, who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What is your business here? And he said to them, this is how Micah dealt with me. He has hired me. And I have become his priest. And they said to him, inquire of God, please, that we may know whether the journey on which we are setting out will succeed. And the priests said to them, go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord. Then the five men departed and came to Laish and saw the people who were there, how they lived in security after the manner of the Sidonians quiet and unsuspecting, lacking nothing that is in the earth and possessing wealth, and how they were far from the Sidonians and had no dealings with anyone. And when they came to their brothers at Zorah and Eshtaol, their brothers said to them, what do you report? They said, arise, let us go up against them, for we have seen the land and behold, it is very good. And will you do nothing? Do not be slow to go to enter in and possess the land. As soon as you go, you will, you will come to an unsuspecting people. The land is spacious, for God has given, into, given it into your hands, a place where there is no lack of anything that is in the earth. So 600 men of the tribe of Dan, armed with weapons of war, set out from Zorah and Eshtaol and went up and encamped at Kiriath-Jerim in Judah. On this account, that place is called Mahanadan to this day. Behold, it is west of Kiriath-Jerim. And they passed on from there to the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah. Then the five men who had gone to scout out the country of Laish said to, this, to their brothers, Do you know that in these houses there are an ephod, household gods, a carved image, and a metal image? 
Now, therefore, consider what you will do. And they turned aside there and came to the house of the young Levite at the home of Micah and asked him about his welfare. Now, the 600 men of the Danites, armed with their weapons of war, stood by the entrance of the gate, and the five men who had, come, who had gone to scout out the land went up and entered and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods and the metal image, while the priest stood by the entrance of the gate with the 600 men armed with weapons of war. And when these went into Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, the priest said to them, what are you doing? And they said to him, keep quiet, put your hand on your mouth and come with us and be to us a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be a priest to the house of one man or to be priest to a tribe and clan in Israel? And the priest's heart was glad. He took the ephod and the household gods and the carved image and went along with the people. So they turned and departed, putting the little ones and the livestock and the goods in front of them. When they had gone a distance from the home of Micah, the men who were in the houses near Micah's house was called out and they overtook the people of Dan and they shouted to the people of Dan who turned around and said to Micah, what is the matter with you that you come with such a company? And he said, you take my gods that I made and the priest, and go away. And what have I left? How then do you ask me what is the matter with you? And the people of Dan said to him, Do not let your voice be heard among us, lest angry fellows fall upon you, and you lose your life with the lives of your household. Then the people of Dan went their way, and when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back to his home. But the people of Dan took what Micah had made and the priest who belonged to him. And they came to Laish to people quiet and unsuspecting and struck them with the edge of the sword and burned the city with fire. And there was no deliverer because it was far from Sidon. And they had no dealings with anyone. It was in the valley that belongs to Beth Rehob. Then they rebuilt the city and lived in it. And they named the city Dan after the name of Dan, their ancestor, who was born to Israel. But the name of the city was Laish at the first. And the people of Dan set up the, car- set up the carved image for themselves. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. Amen. This is God's holy word. I know that's a a lengthy passage to read, and so we'll summarize as we work our way through this text, and I encourage you to reread it together with your family uh, during the week. But we come to this first section in chapter 17, idolatry in the household of Micah. Idolatry in the household of Micah. His house of spiritual oddities begins. Here in verses 1 through 5, Micah confesses to stealing 1,100 pieces of silver from his mother. And instead of receiving discipline, she blesses him. And she dedicates, initially, it would appear she dedicates the, the whole amount. But then when it comes time to actually give it to the silversmith to make an idol, she gives 200 pieces of silver, a little less than 20% of her initial promise. 
obviously this is a direct violation of the second commandment, no matter what her intentions were. And Micah promptly accepts that gift and creates a cult, surrounds himself with additional idols, and even ordains his son as priest. So when it comes to the worship of God, we cannot look outside of his revealed will without corrupting the very act itself. That's what he's done here. There's, there's some resemblance here, right? His, his need for a priest, his recognition for a mediator. And yet it's totally corrupt. He thinks he can just ordain his own son to be a priest to him. The first point of application I want to give you is this. Biblical liturgy is not the cause of dead worship. The problem stems from a corrupted practice and from depraved hearts that have grown cold to the things of God. Biblical worship is not the problem. Let us never blame biblical worship as if we could do something to fix it, as if we could just add a fog machine and that'll help. Turn up the speakers to make, the, uh, make it sound a little more like a, a concert. It's not going to fix it. Biblical worship is not the problem. It's the corrupt practices and a depraved heart. That's the problem of our worship. And, and he, def- he really, the author, the narrator, defines his position upon uh, really all of this conclusion with his refrain in verse 6. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The idea that there was no king in Israel, that everyone did whatever they wanted to do, whatever they desired, whatever they pleased. That's the refrain you'll find four times in this conclusion. Twice, we read it twice. We, the, the initial two just have, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Right? It's kind of truncated version of that refrain. But it implies the same thing, that there was, there was no moral standard by which they were living. It's repeated in 19, chapter, chapter 19, verse 1, in those days there was no king in Israel. And then again, it's repeated in full at the very end, the last verse. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So you have the full refrain in chapter 17, verse 6, and then again in 21, verse 25, and then you have it truncated in 18.1 and 19.1. But the idea is that the narrator's sort of hinting there at what he believes about what's taking place. It reveals the author's perspective. Despite the fact that as you read through the narrative, there's really just a neutral way of, it's just portraying the facts, just describing what's taking place. The narrative unfolds in a neutral fashion. But in this section, in chapter 17, the refrain is in the very middle, verse 6, where you have this this Micah's house referenced in verses 1 through 5, and again, Micah's house is, is the central location in 7 through uh, thir- 13. So verse 6 is right in the middle. Again, it, just, it indicates its priority, that this is the author's perspective. It stands in direct contrast to what we read in, chapter, in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 8. You shall not do according to all that we are doing here today, everyone doing whatever is right in his own eyes. 
That was the instruction from Moses. Let us not do what's right in our own eyes. And, and what's happening now in the time of Judges is, is that very thing. In fact, as, as I put in your handout, I encourage you to, to compare chapter, Deuteronomy 12, verse 1, through chapter 13, verse 1 of Deuteronomy to Judges 17 and 18. There's a, there's a contrast taking place there throughout. So in verses 7 through 13, Micah's house of spiritual oddities matures. Here we, we find, he finds a priest for hire. Micah hires a young wandering Levite, offers him a nice salary complete with a clothing allowance. In fact, I've requested that same kind of allowance of our session. I have yet to hear back from them, but... I'll let you know how it goes. I think it's clothing is not cheap these days. No, he was offered a uh, he was offered everything. Right, we'll take care of you. He was a so a wanderer. He didn't have a place to stay. So they not only give him a place to live, they say we'll pay you and we'll take care of your 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 needs, all of your needs. So there were provisions in the law for the care of sojourning Levites. You have that in Deuteronomy chapter eighteen verses 6 through 9, but obviously Micah's offer was clearly out of accord with the law. He's doing his own thing here. Micah is willing to submit to what is described as a boy, a young man, submitting to him as his father, and yet it also describes him as treating him like a son. It's just one big ball of emotional confusion. So he ordains the Levite as if he had the authority to do that. He thinks 